second here. There we go. Here we go. Okay, last week we were looking at um, Romans chapter 11, verse 36. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. And we saw, we saw last week that that little phrase, all things, means just that. It includes everything. We looked at it and we, remember we talked about how there are no limitations to that word in this verse. In the immediate context, it refers to everything Paul stated in chapters 1 through chapter 11. We talked about that total depravity, how we were lost in sin, how God came in and He took the initiative and He saved us and He sanctifies us. We saw all of that. But we also saw that the all things refers to as well uh, the entire Bible. And we talked about those three prepositional phrases in this verse, the first half. From Him, through Him, to Him. Three prepositional phrases that carry tremendous weight. And so often we read through them and don't even think about it. But from Genesis through to Revelation, everything therein is contained in those three prepositions. Everything from Genesis, from eternity past, to Revelation, eternity future, all that's in there is contained in these three prepositions. From God, through God, and to God. That's how powerful these words are. They carry all of that weight. And then we looked at them individually. The first prepositional phrase, from Him. It denotes origin. It indicates that God is the source of all things. Everything is from God. There's nothing that exists that has not come from God. Right? All things are from God. The second prepositional phrase, through Him. This denotes the originator, indicating that God is the means by which all things remain in being. That's how all things are accomplished. He holds all things together by the power of His Word. Everything is directed to the final end by God. It's all through Him. There's nothing by chance. There's no such thing as an accident. There's no such thing as a coincidence. Everything is through God. And then the third prepositional phrase, to Him, that points to the goal of everything. Everything that you see, everything that happens, all of it has a goal. And everything is going toward God in that all glory will redound to God forever and ever and ever. All things, everything that happens in your life, from the time you're born to the time God takes you home, all of it is to His glory. When you're driving down the road, you see cars all around you, people all around you, nature everywhere, all of it, everything you see, redounds to the glory of Almighty God. That's what that phrase means. Then we spent time discussing the details of uh, these prep, uh, the, the prepositions. God is the uncreated creator. He is the genius behind everything that exists in creation. And remember I said it also includes all of history. Everything in your history is from God. Nothing happens by accident. Who your parents are, who your family is, all of it. No such things as coincidences, as I said, and I want to make that very clear because a lot of times people talk, I hear it even at work, you know, well, by chance this happened. There's no such thing as by chance. 
What does that mean, by chance? There's no such thing. The strange coincidence happened in my life. There's no such thing. What's a coincidence? No, it's God. It's from God. Everything in life, even the most difficult times of your life that you've been through, comes from God with a perfect purpose. From Him. So everything that takes place is predetermined by God, and it was predetermined before the creation of the world. Therefore, what's going to happen to you the rest of this day and tomorrow and next week and for the rest of your life has been predetermined. It's from God. That's why we are commanded in Scripture that in all things we are to give thanks. Because our God is behind it all. He controls it all. We talked about how God holds all things together. The reason why you and I are here right now and we exist at this very moment is because of God. We exist because He holds us together. The entire universe continues right now at this moment because God holds it together. He governs it all. If He was to let go for one millisecond, as I said last week, just one millisecond, He just let go, everything would disintegrate and disappear. Everything exists because God holds it together every moment by the word of His power. Praise God he doesn't release it. Because if he did, there's nothing holding it together. It would disappear. We'd have the big bang. <laughs> yeah, we would have the big bang, right? And as I said last week, he is the author and finisher of life. Not man, not doctors, not sicknesses or diseases. God is the author and God is the finisher. Our days are numbered. It's in his hands. You will not pass from this life one second earlier than what God has ordained. Regardless COVID, regardless flu, regardless sicknesses and diseases, you will not pass from this life one millisecond earlier than what God has predetermined. It's through Him, not through us. You know, people say, well, I exercise and stay healthy so I can extend my life. You don't extend it one second. You can have a better quality of life, but you will not extend your life. No one extends their lives. Your life is numbered by God. Right? No accidents. And that's what makes Romans 8.28 true. God causes all things to work together for good. Because everything is through Him. That's why it's a guaranteed promise. And we could trust Him. And of course, we, we saw that all things are to God. And that is the ultimate aim of everything. His highest aim is His own glory. That's where God's passion lies. You want to know what God's passion is? His glory. And if that's God's passion, where should our passion be? Yeah, for Him. Exactly. Him. That's why in 48, uh, Isaiah 48, 11, He says, For my own sake. And just in case you miss it, He repeats it. For my own sake. Get the emphasis. For my own sake. For my own sake, I act. That's what God says. You know what's missing in there? You and me. He doesn't say, for my sake and your sake. For my sake alone. For my sake alone I act. I will share my glory with no one. All things are to God alone. Not to man. Not to any person or anything. Even what man means for evil, God takes and uses it for good. We see, we see that in Scripture, don't we? Remember Joseph with his brothers? Well, you meant for evil, 
God took and meant it for good. Exactly. Exactly. And then, of course, I mentioned last week that this includes our salvation. Our salvation is from God. It originated with Him. Our salvation is through God. It came through Him. And, of course, our salvation is to God. The purpose of your salvation is the glory of Jesus Christ. In Ephesians 1, uh, we see the phrase repeated again and again, to the praise of His glory, to the praise of the glory of His grace, to the praise of the glory of His grace. If you look at Ephesians chapter 1, verses, uh, starting verse 3, through to verse 14, it, all t- it talks, that whole section talks about our salvation. He predestined us. He chose us before the foundations of the world, right? He then saved us. He forgave us. And then he sealed us with the Holy Spirit. That's our salvation. And three times he repeats, to the praise of the glory of his grace. You are saved today. I am saved today to the praise of the glory of his grace. It's not because I'm wonderful. It's not because I deserve this patent. It's like, Rick, you're great. No. It's to his glory. Everything, including our salvation, is to him. Now we come to the second half of this great verse. I didn't mention it last week. You probably thought we were not going to cover it. Uh-uh, we have to cover it because it's significant. It's one of the most important parts of this verse. And the more fully you grasp the first part, the more that the second part becomes a reality. Because notice the second part of the verse. To him be the glory forever. This is the result of the first half of the verse. What we discussed last week results in the second half of the verse. Paul here is overwhelmed And what he has just stated in that first half of the verse and all that it contains. And he cannot contain himself. And so he gives this exuberant, to God be the glory forever. Amen. So when the reality of that first half sets in, the natural response is the way Paul responded. Acclamation of God's glory. Praise to his glorious name. Now think about it. What happens to this statement if not all things or through and to God, right? Let's say if it was mainly God, but then also there's a little bit of man in there that man did a few things. It would cancel this whole story, uh, this whole uh, section of the verse, right? It would cancel it out. Because not only would glory go to God, but then if we had, you know, if it was our decision and we had something to do with it, then we could pat on the back and get a little bit of the glory ourselves. So not all glory goes to God. Most of it does, but not all of it. That's the danger of man putting his um, thoughts in there thinking that I had something to do with it. And I meet a lot of people that way. A lot of people. I had one woman tell me, just it took my breath away when she said it. I had a woman tell me who was sick. She said, I'm not feeling that well today. God is not really helping me today, but I forgive him anyway. And I, and I, I had to stop for a moment, take a breath, because it's just like, you forgive God. That's the thinking of people. Now, she was probably a little bit uh, messed up with meds and stuff, but the thought of having to forgive God, really? That's how people think. They think that we have something to do with it, and we don't. It is God alone. God alone. So there is no other. There's no room here for you. There's no room here for me or any other person. All glory to God alone. German, uh, German scholar Schlatter 
says that God is the one to whom all honor belongs. Apart from him, no one has it. He is the one who is praised without end. And I agree. He and he alone, not man. And this is what makes pride so incredibly evil. Pride is incredibly offensive to God. John Stott states, he said, Pride is behaving as if we were God Almighty, strutting around the earth as if we owned the place, repudiating our due dependence on God, pretending instead that all things depend on us, and thus arrogating to ourselves the glory which belongs to God alone. That's pride. That's pride. It's dangerous. And this is the reason our theology is so critical. Because the higher your theology, the higher will be your doxology, your praise. There's so much talk about having more worship in the church and less theology because theology is boring. I literally had people tell me that. The reality is the exact opposite. The exact opposite. The greater and the better, the deeper the theology, the greater is the worship. To not have deep theology, you have shallow or wrong worship. Understand this. Genuine worship in the church is not produced by music, by acting, or whatever people do in their churches today. That's not where genuine worship comes from. You can use music, and I think it's great that we use music, but that's not where it comes from. Worship doesn't come from that. Genuine worship comes from theology. Remember what Jesus told the woman at the well? Those who worship God will worship what? In spirit and in truth. Truth refers to the truth of God, His Word. It is sound doctrine that ignites the heart in genuine worship for God. So when people talk about, well, theology is boring and I don't like it, then you don't want to worship God. That's how we worship God. Now we look at this, in this verse, the term, the word glory. It has the definite article in the Greek text. So it's the glory. It ends, it lends emphasis to this word. So the greatest, most supreme glory belongs to God and God alone. There is no other, right? And note the term forever. In, in, in the Greek, it is a plural phrase, literally meaning unto the ages. And the reason why I bring that out is that is that the Greek does that to emphasize it. So not only is the glory, all glory to him, but it is emphatic that it goes to him forever and ever without end. So God deserves supreme glory for all eternity. And this is the purpose for everything that exists and for everything that happens from time and eternity. It is for his glory. Murray, another uh, uh, scholar, another professor said, God is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. And to him must not only all glory be ascribed, but to him all glory will redound. All glory will redound for all eternity. That's what, you know, people want to know what it's like in heaven. That's what heaven is about. We will be ascribing glory to God forever and ever and ever. Heaven never ends. Heaven gets better and better every moment that we're there. Please understand, heaven is not a one-time shot where we go there, we get everything all at once, and then it's boring. Our God is an infinite God. I said this last week. How long 
is an infinite God going to take to reveal His glory to you and me? For all eternity. Right? That's heaven. For all eternity, we will get new phases of God's glory. He'll reveal Himself again and again and again. And we're going to see things that we've never even imagined. We don't know God right now the way we, we think we do. We barely scratch the surface. It's going to take all eternity. And every time we get this, and every time we see more of God, we ascribe to Him greater and greater glory. That's heaven. Isn't it interesting in Scripture, when we look at the, the glimpses of heaven, there is no family reunions. You know, I talk to people and say, oh, I can't wait to go to heaven. I'm going to see my dad and my sister and my brother and my aunt and my dog and all of these other things. If you look at Scripture, every time you see a vision of heaven, what do you see? At the very center is God. And God's created, uh, greatest created beings, these seraphim, the greatest of the mightiest of angels, what are they doing? Falling down. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God without end. What makes us think that when we get to heaven, we're going to put our arms around our, you know, our friends and say, hey, this is great, isn't it? No, we are going to be crying out, glorifying him, because he will be revealing his glory to us, and we will be left breathless. Wow! Forever and ever, all glory to God. And if that is the reality, what should we be doing today? That's what life is about. Exalting Him, worshiping Him, praising Him. That's what this means. Kent Hughes, he says, God's glory should be our sole and constant desire. To this end, we should raise our families. To this end, we must focus all prosperity. To this end, we ought to live our entire lives. Then he makes the statement, I love the statement, how right, li how right life is when theology becomes doxology. How right life is when our lives, because of the depth of theology, becomes praise and worship constantly to our great God. That's what Paul desires here in the second part of verse 36. And the glory of God is critical to understand in this passage. But see, he, that, therein lies the problem, trying to understand glory. Because see, glory is not a thing, right? Glory is not like a shoe. It's not like a stake, a house, a car. That's not glory. See, those are particular physical items. Those are things that can be carefully described with words, and you can get a picture of it and what it's like. You could draw a picture of a shoe. You could take a photograph of a car or of a house, and you could see what it is. But glory isn't that way. There's no single drawing, no painting, no photograph. There's no verbal description that could ever uh, capture the perfect glory of Almighty God. See, glory isn't a part of God. It is all that God is. It's His nature. Every aspect of who God is, every part of what He does, is glorious. That's God. He is infinitely glorious. It cannot be added to, and it will never diminish. He is immutable, meaning He doesn't change. Right? But even that's not enough of a description. When the Bible speaks of God's glory, what's it talking about? It's talking about God's glory is the greatness, the infinite greatness, if you will, the indescribable beauty, and the absolute perfection of all that He is. The infinite greatness, 
the indescribable beauty and the absolute perfection of all that he is. In everything that he is and in everything that he does, God is great beyond human description. God's glory is all of his attributes together as one composite whole. That's God. It's not a part of God. It's who God is. Every attribute, every action of God is stunningly beautiful in every way. That's why the angels in heaven are stunned constantly. And that's why they cry out his praises. Worthy is the Lamb. Because everything that he does is beautiful. And so God is totally perfect in all that he is and all that he does. And that's what it means when we talk about the glory of God, who he is. It is the stunning reality that there exists this one in the universe who is the infinite greatest, who is the most indescribably beautiful and is the most absolutely perfect one there is. There are no valid comparisons to him. That's why it's hard to describe. You can't look at something and say, hey, that's like God. There is nothing. You can look at the entire universe, and the entire universe cannot contain God, so you can't even compare him to the universe. That's how we see God. And every part of God is glorious in every possible way. Therefore, he alone stands in his vast universe as the only one who deserves worship. Now, this glory that I've been talking about is what we can call, or some people have called, intrinsic glory. In other words, that's who God is. That's his nature. Intrinsic glory, or you could call him innate glory, or inerrant glory. It cannot be given to anybody or anything else. Only God has this glory. That's why it is innate. That's why it's intrinsic. That's why he doesn't share it with anybody. And this is God from eternity past to eternity future. And as I said, it will never diminish. It will never decrease. Now, because of this intrinsic glory, because this is who he is, Paul says, all glory be to God. In other words, Scripture commands us to give glory to God. Now, this does not mean in any way that we give God more glory, as if he doesn't have it all already. Right? He has it all. So we're not going to give God this intrinsic glory. It's his. We can't give him any more of that glory. When Paul says, to God be the glory, he is referring to the praise and the worship that we attribute or ascribe to God. It's what we call ascribed glory. I don't print as nice as Bruce, so forgive me. Ascribed glory. Ascribed glory is what we give to God. We praise, we worship him because of intrinsic glory. So you can say that this ascribed glory comes as a result of the intrinsic glory. So the more that you learn of the intrinsic glory, the greater becomes the ascribed glory. Make sense? And so when it says all glory to God, what Paul is saying is that we are ascribing glory, ascribing praise and worship to him. So intrinsic glory then leads to ascribed glory. Some of you are looking strange. Does that make sense? If not, I want to clarify. Makes sense? Intrinsic glory, God's nature, who he is. Ascribed glory is the result of what we offer him because of it. 
This is very similar to what Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 1.17. He says, Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Note what he does. He describes his intrinsic glory. To the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God. That's intrinsic. That's who he is. Then he describes the ascribed glory, be honor and glory forever and ever. We see this throughout all of Scripture. As I mentioned in Ephesians, chapter 1, verse 6, 12, and 11, you see it's all to the praise of His glory. To the praise of His glory. To the praise, that's ascribed glory. To the praise, we praise Him. That's ascribed glory, that's what we ascribe to Him. To the praise of His glory, that's intrinsic. Make sense? So, to the praise is His ascribed glory. We are praising Him. Why? Because of His intrinsic glory, because of who He is to the praise of His glory. Again and again we see it. This is why it's so important to grow in our knowledge and understanding of who God is through the Word of God. Because it draws us to worship and praise Him, to give Him the glory. And this is one of the reasons why people like John Piper and others have stated that the primary worship leader in the church is the man who expounds the deep truths of God's Word. He's the true worship leader. See, preaching is the most important act of worship on a Sunday morning. Because without the preaching, we don't learn of this. And if we don't learn of this intrinsic glory, what happens to ascribed glory? It's minimal. The higher the preaching, the higher we talk about His intrinsic glory, the more that we make much of God and learn of Him, the greater will be our worship. I tend to agree that it is the one who's preaching, that is the actual worship leader. So this morning, Steve, our pastor, is the worship leader. Not taking anything away from Joel. Joel helps us with the music so that we can praise and worship him. But what are we praising and worshiping? We're praising and worship according to what we understand here. Did I just turn this thing on? Yeah. I'm sorry. Sorry. <laughs> I got off the set my anyway. Hope I didn't ruin it. Now. But I, I tend to agree. The preacher is the one who, who leads the worship through his preaching. He gives the uh, innate glory. He teaches on the innate glory of God, and the result will be ascribed glory to God. And by the way, that's what it means when we gather for worship. It involves both. When we gather together for worship, it's not that we just shake hands and say hi to one another. We do that, and there's nothing wrong with that. But when we gather together for worship, what is primary is this that we learn and grow and understand in this. Why? Because then our entire lives will be doing this, ascribing to Him His worth. That's what Scripture is about. That's what the Christian life is all about. Growing in who God is, in His awesome wonder. And then being left staggered and saying, Whoa, all glory to God. That's what life is about. And notice the duration of giving God this glory. How long? Forever. Is there any limitation to that? No, not at all. That's why this should be on the forefront of our minds throughout our lives, regardless of the circumstances we go through. In good times and in bad times, all glory belongs to God. As mentioned earlier, unto the ages, it emphasizes eternity. Since we're going to be praising and worshiping God for all eternity, it should consume us now. It's not something that we wait for on Sunday mornings. 
But this afternoon, tomorrow morning when you wake up, this should be consuming us. When you're driving down the road, this should be consuming us. And I confess I struggle with that. But it should be consuming us. That's what it's about. As I said, in heaven we're going to be seeing more and more of God, but it begins now. We should be seeing more and more of Him now. Not wait till we get to heaven. We need to study and learn and grow so it never ends. And this is a theme repeated over and over throughout the New Testament. For example, Galatians chapter 1, verse 3. Listen to what Paul says. God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forevermore. To whom be the glory forevermore. Ephesians 3, verse 21. To him be the glory to all generations forever and ever. Philippians chapter 4, verse 20. Now to our God and Father be the glory forever and ever. 2 Timothy 4.18, to him be the glory forever and ever. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 21. Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. 2 Peter 3.18, to him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. And on and on and on. I could list an entire slew of these verses again and again and again. Do you think that the Bible's trying to tell us something? All glory to God forever and ever and ever, without end. The hymn Amazing Grace is a very touching hymn, but my favorite verse is the very last verse. It just, I, I can never sing it because I just get, I'm overwhelmed. When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining like the sun, we have no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. We're going to be there 10,000 years and we've barely just begun. I can't get over that. That's stunning. In a sense, eternity is not even long enough to give to God what He is worth. And if that is true, and I believe it is, oh, how desperate we need to start today and not wait for then. That's what Paul is aiming at here. Forever and ever and ever, we will be giving praise to our God as we see and we experience more and more of His glory. But it begins now. In fact, it already began at conversion. When we came to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, the purpose of that was so that you and I would give to Him all the glory, the ascribed glory. So if you want to know what the Christian life is about, that's it right there, in a nutshell. I mean, there's a lot more involved, but to summarize it, it is ascribed glory. It's to give God the glory that He deserves, to worship Him, to praise Him, to honor Him in everything. You see, there's only one God who exists in the universe. He's ultimate in glory, ultimate in greatness, ultimate in beauty, ultimate in perfection. He alone deserves it. And He is all of these things in everything He is and in everything He does. God never is diminished in His perfection. God is never diminished in His greatness, in His glory, in anything He does. God has no glory inconsistencies. He's not up and down the way we are. He's infinitely glorious all the time. 
forever and ever. He has no glory rivals. Nothing can be compared to Him. All that is comes from Him. All that continues to exist is through Him. And all that is made is to Him. So to live in light of the doctrine of God's glory isn't just about being spiritual, although that's included. But the reality is, is that it's about recapturing your humanity. Because this is how you and I were designed and created to be from the very beginning. Adam and Eve, when they were originally created in perfection, was ultimately to the praise and the glory of God. And so for us to live in this way, to see this intrinsic glory and to ascribe to Him glory is to recapture our true humanity, what God created us to be. That's what Adam and Eve were created to be. But of course, sin crept in and ruined everything. So with that in mind, I want to give you five implications that the doctrine of glory has in our everyday lives. There's five implications I want you to think about when it comes to this doctrine of glory, this intrinsic glory, and then ascribed glory. First, we must understand, you and I, we are hardwired for glory. We are hardwired for glory. People are glory-oriented creatures. Animals are not. Okay, that's what makes us different. People are attracted to glorious things. Whether it's an exciting drama, production, a sports game, a piece of music, whatever it is, even over a meal that has a, a me, that's me, I just, I love food and a great meals like, wow, right? But we're glory oriented creatures. God built this glory orientation into us. That's the image of God in us, okay? And because of this glory orientation, our lives will always be shaped by the pursuit of some kind of glory, whatever it is, something greater, something more. That's built in us. That's who we are. So you and I will always be chasing something to satisfy that glory hunger that God designed for us to have. So you should ask yourself this question daily. How was my decisions yesterday influenced by my glory hardwiring? Because our decisions are influenced by our hardwiring of seeking glory. We may not realize it, but it's, the, it's a reality. So we are glory-oriented creatures. That's how God made us. We're hard, hardwired for that. So that's the first implication. Second implication. God created this glorious world to point to His glory. I could say creation. Maybe you could say God created all of creation, including the universe, to point to His glory. But God intentionally placed you and me into a world that is jam-packed with glory. Everywhere we see, everywhere we look. All of creation, as I said last week, is like one giant finger pointing to God. Jot down Psalm 19, verses 1 through 6. Take some time to read it later. The heavens declare what? The glory of God. All of creation declares the glory of God. Day to day pours forth speech. I like the way Paul Tripp states it. He always has a nice way of saying things. He says, from trees to flowers to mountains, from mashed potatoes to steak to lemonade, from thunderstorms to sunsets to snowfalls, 
All of these things were designed by God to tingle our glory sensors. I love that. We all have glory sensors. I like thinking of it that way. But I fear that too many have, our glo- have their glory sensors tainted or leaning in the wrong way. It's important to understand that every created glory is meant by God to function as a, um, you could call it a spiritual GPS, if you will. It points us to the only glory that will ever satisfy our hearts, the glory of God. Think of it this way. Imagine you're taking a family vacation, and you're going to go to the Grand Canyon. And you're driving down the road, and you're coming up to the Grand Canyon, and you see this sign, 30 miles, Grand Canyon. So you pull off and set up camp right at that sign, and that's where you're going to spend your vacation. I can tell by your expressions, that's really crazy. That sounds very ridiculous and foolish, right? No, you would not stop at the sign and celebrate there at the sign. You'd want to go to the actual place, the Grand Canyon. But this is the same thing with the glory of God in creation. Everything you see is only a sign directing you to the source. Don't stop at the sign. Go to the source. A beautiful sunset is beautiful, but it's just a sign of what? The awesome majesty of my God. You look at the vast mountain ranges. How awesome is it? But don't stop at the sign. Who put those mountains there? Who holds those mountains there? Look at this vast universe, and it's breathtaking. But don't stop at the sign. Go past and see. It's all in God's hands. He directs it all by the word of his power. See, everything you see is just a sign. It's a big old finger, as I said last week, pointing to God. So don't just stop at the sign. Enjoy it, but don't stop at the sign. Go to God. So ask yourself, what can you do to be more aware of the glorious world all around you every moment? As you drive down the road, you look at trees. I look at those trees and we think, man, they're there and they even look messy at times. But every one of those leaves has been given life and continues to live because of God. God does it all. So don't stop at the sign. He created this glorious world to point to his glory. Third, only God's glory can satisfy the glory hunger in our hearts. Only God's glory can satisfy the glory hunger in our hearts. We all have this hunger for glory. And therefore, that's what we always strive for. We see that in the lives of people all the time. We see it in our own lives. We all want what is glorious in our lives, whether that's the fleeting glorious pleasures of this world. It could be a meal. Mm, that's great. Or, or, or whatever it could be, the, the, the recognition of peers where you want that pat on the back where people think you're wonderful and you're great. Wow, that was an amazing job. But where we chase after glory can vary. But one thing is for certain. There's only one thing for certain. The hunger for glory will never be satisfied by created things. The hunger for glory will never be satisfied by created things. God never intended it to be that way. Even if you could experience the most glorious situations, even if you could experience the most glorious locations, the greatest relationships, some of the most awesome experiences, even if you could experience some of the greatest achievements or possessions in life, your heart 
will still be unsatisfied. That's why we see today with people that have so much still unsatisfied and striving for more, they're not happy. They need more. That's the reason why. There's a glory hunger and they're trying to satisfy it with that which does not satisfy. Creation has no capacity, uh, capacity to, to satisfy in any way. Only God can satiate, uh, satiate that hunger. And in situating our hunger, he gives peace and rest to our hearts. And that's why we ascribe that glory to him. Only he can do that. You and I don't have what it takes. So where in creation are you looking to satisfy that glory hunger? That's a question you, ask, you have to ask constantly as well. So only God's glory can satisfy the glory hunger in our hearts. Fourth, there's a danger we have to understand here. This is very important. Fourth, sin turns you and me into glory thieves. That's what happened to Adam and Eve. Right? Sin turns you and me into glory thieves. The original design in that perfection when they, uh, God created man is that we were to live in a glorious world and exist in perfect relational harmony with the glorious God in which we offer to Him this glory. But sin corrupted that original design. And now you and I have the desire to live for ourselves. We do. Instead of living for the glory of God, we try to steal that glory for ourselves. We demand that we be the center of our own worlds. Everything revolves around us. That's how we live. We take credit for what only God could produce. We desire, we want to be sovereign. We want to be in control. We want others to worship us by acknowledging us and talking about us and say, oh, how wonderful that person is. We all strive for that. That's being glory thief. We establish our own kingdom, and we want to punish those who want to rebel against that kingdom. That's why we gossip and slander. We tell ourselves that we're entitled to what we don't deserve, and we complain when things don't go our way because we're at the center of our world. We're glory thieves. And so in living for our own glory, we steal glory that belongs to God. But what makes this very, very dangerous is that it's so subtle, we don't see it. Most of the time, we don't see it. Many times we're at the center of our own world and we don't even see it. Many times we live in pride and conceit and arrogance and we don't see it because we're blinded by sin. That's what makes this so dangerous. That's why in the world, you look at people in the world who don't know the Lord, that's what they live for. And to tell them that that's not how you're supposed to live, they think you're crazy. We're glory thieves. And fifth, this is important. God's grace alone has the power to cure our glory dysfunction. God's grace alone has the power to cure our glory dysfunction. See, the reality is, is you and I don't have what it takes to cure this dysfunction. We don't. The flesh is not strong enough. We're blinded by our sin. Many have tried to do it on their own. None have succeeded. You will never succeed on your own. Sin is too strong a draw. The flesh is too weak. In fact, remember Paul in Romans chapter 7. I find myself doing the very things I don't want to do. And the things I do want to do, I don't do. I can relate to that every day of my life. We can't do it on our own. It just doesn't work. Our only hope is for God 
the God of glory, to invade our lives and to rescue us. And what does he rescue us? Not from this world, not from this culture, not from these things. He needs to rescue us from us. Understand, we are our own greatest enemy. And that's so hard for people to understand. We need God to save us from us. And in amazing grace, Jesus willingly came on a glory rescue mission. And because he did, there's hope for us. And because he did, this can be true. Apart from Jesus, this is not true for, for, uh, for the lives of people. Nobody can do this. Only in Christ can we be rescued from ourselves, see the awesome intrinsic glory of God, and be overwhelmed like Paul. And say, wow, all glory to God forever and ever. Amen. And to wrap it all up, I want to state again what I stated last week. Probably if there's one significant lesson to take from this verse, it would be this. The, the, our theology results in our doxology. Right? So important to remember. Our belief about God, that's theology, that's his intrinsic glory, has direct impact on our worship of God. That's our doxology. Without theology, you cannot have doxology. Without the knowledge of God, you cannot have worship, right? How can you ascribe God what he is worth? That's what worship is, worth-ship. To ascribe to God his worth. How can you ascribe to God his worth if you don't know who God is? So we see that in this verse very clearly. John Stott says, All true worship is a response to the self-revelation of God in Christ and Scripture and arises from our reflection on who he is and what he has done. That's where worship comes from. So the greater and more accurate our vision of God, the greater and more overwhelming will be our worship. And we will be like Paul. We will not be able to contain ourselves. Because that's what provoked Paul in this statement of praise. To God be the glory forever. Amen. All attempts to worship apart from proper theology is idolatry. That's where it begins. That's where idolatry begins. Right? Anytime we try to worship God apart from theology, apart from the knowledge of Him, all it is is idolatry. It's wrong worship. I fear this is what happens in many churches today because theology is not emphasized. And that's why I say that this is what makes the Word of God so critical if worship is to properly take place. And the Word of God is to take place both privately in our personal lives as well as in corporate worship. God's Word is at the heart of worship. God's Word reveals His intrinsic glory. We must be caught up with this if we are going to produce this. We must be caught up with intrinsic glory if we are going to produce ascribed glory to God. But we have to be careful. I've seen this happen often. We have to be careful that we fill our minds with academic knowledge of God without affecting the heart. That's flawed study. I know a lot of people who have a lot of knowledge of who God is from Scripture. They can quote Scripture all over the place but it doesn't touch their hearts. They're not moved. They're not stirred. It's just head knowledge. 
See, the purpose of reading and studying and meditating on the Word of God is that it impact our heart so that it will overflow in praise and worship to glorify Him, ascribe glory. That's the purpose of God's Word. It's not just to gain as much knowledge as you can and then go around and tell people how much you know. I know people who don't know that much that have better worship than people who have PhDs. And all they are is caught up with all the little details and all this knowledge, but they are unaffected in their hearts. Please understand, God is not impressed with degrees. <laughs> you can have five PhDs and God says, yeah, really? I'm omniscient. I'm omniscient. I have a PhD, an infinite PhD in everything. So God is not impressed with knowledge. He's impressed with the heart. So when we read and when we study, we cry, God, impact my soul, impact my heart. I want to feel it and be overwhelmed by it. Genuine knowledge of God always leads to worship or it is not genuine worship, right? It's not. It's not genuine knowledge. Bishop Henley Moore, he's a New Testament uh, scholar from quite a while back, but he said this, and I like the way he said it. He said, we must be, uh, I'm sorry, we must beware equally of an undevotional theology and of an untheological devotion. Think about that. We have to be careful. We don't want to have an undevotional theology, meaning we don't want to read a theology book and just take in that knowledge and be able to quote things, and that's it, and it doesn't affect our hearts. That's undevotional theology. But at the same time, we have to be careful of an untheological devotion. In other words, where we don't know who God is, and it doesn't bother us, but hey, we sing worship anyway, as if we're truly worshiping. Both ends, are, uh, they're both extremes, and both are wrong. So we have to be careful. When we read God's Word, don't read it just for reading it. God is not impressed that you read His Word once through every year. I mean, that's great. I'm not saying you shouldn't. But why are you reading it? This is check off a box and say, hey, I read today. Or, I'm, yeah, I, I finished reading the Bible. I finished reading this book. When somebody says that to you, you should ask them, what is the most profound thought of God that you got out of your study this morning? How did it impact your heart? Because that's what's critical. You could read a verse and be blown away by it, and you'll gain more than a person who's read three chapters. See, that's the issue at hand, is we must know and be impacted and overwhelmed by Him that it overflows in ascribed glory. And note how he ends it. Amen. Amen. In other words, so be it. Let it be so. We should be people whose hearts are so touched that when we hear these thoughts of God and we're touched, we should be able to scream, Amen! Now, I'm not saying we have to do it verbally because I know some people are uncomfortable with that, although that's fine if you do. I like to do it. But our hearts, deep down, should be screaming, Amen! Amen! So be it! Let it be so! Can you say Amen to all these doctrines of God? Can you say amen to the fact that God's wrath is real? See, a lot of people don't like to hear that. God does, God does judge, and it's a wrath that we can't even begin to imagine. Can we say amen? amen. Yes, we should be able to, because that's who God is. It's not unjust. 
It's not unfair, and it's not evil or wicked. It is pure and holy. Therefore, because of it, that's part of his intrinsic glory, we should be able to say, Amen, praise be to his glorious name now and forever. Intrinsic glory that leads to ascribed glory. And as I said earlier, how right life is when theology becomes doxology. How right life is when we read to know who God is and it overwhelms us with worship and praise of God. All right? And by the way, worship is not just standing up in church and, and singing these songs. You can worship God while you drive. That's what I'm trying to do more and more of. Because traffic is just horrible and people just don't know how to drive. <laughs> That's a confession to all of you. <clears throat> but I'm working at it. But yes, we should worship at all times because we know who this one is. See, right theology always helps us to see God's glory more and more. And that moves us to greater and greater worship. Therefore, God's glory should be our soul and constant desire. As, as uh, Kent Hughes said, I read it earlier, to this end, to this end, we should raise our families. Influence your children. Influence your grandchildren to this end. To this end, we must focus all prosperity. All that you have, everything you have, money and material possessions, the focus should be to the glory of Almighty God. Because that's all that matters. That's what life is about. And to this end, we have to live our entire lives. And you go to work, and you have interaction with people, go to school, have interaction with people, this should be the ultimate end. My prayer has been and will continue to be that this revelation of God and the revelation of His ways move us to stand in awe of Him more and more and make Him the beginning, the middle, and the end of everything we think and everything we do. That is what we strive, we should be striving for. And when we gather together, and you come to gather on a Sunday morning, whether it's Bible study or even in the service, and before you go to service, cry out to God, Oh God, my flesh is weak and sin is strong. Please open my eyes. Show me who you are. Give me a new vision of who you are that I may worship you when I hear that sermon. Pray that God would open the eyes of your heart to see him more and more so that you will be moved to want to say, praise be to God, all glory to God, now and forever, amen. That we would not be afraid to say, amen, because that's my God. Pray. Pray that God open your eyes to see that and know that. And you get up in the morning, before you get up to go to work or do whatever, oh God, oh God, awaken in me to see you, awaken me, and you desire, help me to see you afresh in you. As I drive, rather than focusing on, quote, the people that are getting in my way, Lord, rather than focusing on, help me to see the glory of your nature. Look at all those people around you, rather than getting upset, and I'm trying to do this, rather than being upset, look at those people and realize every one of these people are alive and their hearts are beating. Why? Through God. Through God. We should be stunned. We're so used to that. We should be stunned. When we, I look out and I see all of you, I'm thinking, this is incredible. 
I mean, look around. Every person here is alive, breathing, because God has you alive and breathing. Praise be to His glorious name. That He would give me the privilege to stand up here and move around, my heart still beating? That to me is amazing. Don't ever get used to that, please. Please don't ever get used to that. You can get up and move around. Praise God. If you could see what I see during the week, oh, praise God that He has you the way you are. All by His sovereign grace. So to God, be the glory forever. Amen. Any questions? I know I talk a lot. I apologize. I just get on a roll. But are there any questions or comments or thoughts? Yeah. So say this right. So what you're just saying uh, to keep uh, everyday Bible reading from remaining as uh, intellectual information, uh, we must have the holy power sort of kick in and move us closer to Christ's image. Yeah. Remember, remember the prayer of Moses. I love his prayer. Remember, he went up to Mount. What did he ask God? God, show Come me. Yeah. Remember what happened? The Bible describes it that he hid Moses and he showed him his hind parts. Not that God has a back part, but it's just that he saw just a little glimpse. What happened to Moses? He was so overwhelmed. He came off that mountain. Remember what he had to do? He had to cover his face because he was so transformed because he saw a tiny little speck of the glory of God. Oh God, do that to me. As I look at your word, show me your glory, that I may leave this place shining with your awesome glory, that I may declare to people, my God is great, all glory be to God. So yeah, that's how we approach it. And we just got through seeing 10 of the most miraculous, glorious miracles. Well, near enough. No. He got a glimpse of God and whoa. Yeah. And that's what we should be praying every time we open up his word. When we go to the next service, as you go there, prepare your hearts and be praying, God, show me your glory. Oh, God, show me your glory. I want to know who you are. I want to be overwhelmed by you. Show me that glory. The, the five implications are uh, the implications for us every day uh, concerning uh, the glory of God, right? Yeah. Um, oh, I've got my pages all messed up. I'm sorry. The first one I know is that we are hardwired. Oh, 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 I'm sorry. Um, uh, the heading is the, um, the implications for you and I every day concerning God's glory. How to make it personal in our... It, understand this. God's glory is very personal for us. Sometimes we think it's just some esoteric thing that's way out there. No, it's very personal every day for us. Okay? Yes? You know, I was, I was at a church service last week. I've been traveling for the last two months, and I've actually gotten to see all kinds of churches over the course of the last, I would say, at least three months. Last Sunday, I was, you know, listening to a Sunday school preacher, and you... We read, you know, Genesis chapter 8, verse 1, you know, where obviously the flood and the entire world is destroyed. And it says in chapter 8, verse 1, But God remembered Noah, and all the beasts and all the cattle were with him in the ark. And this guy makes a joke 
about how God has a sense of humor because he remembers the cattle. And of course, my mind goes to the entire passage that, wait a minute, of course, I didn't want to share with them. And, you know, obviously, verse 20, then Noah built an ark to the, or built an altar to the Lord and took every clean animal and every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And, you know, he's doing exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. He's acknowledging God's glory. He has just destroyed everything but Noah and his family. Yeah. And this preacher has the audacity yeah. to make it sound like God has a sense of humor about oh. the cattle. Over oh, something so tragic. People yeah. chuckle and laugh, and it's like... And then you wonder why people have a tough time. The whole point yeah. of God's glory. And it, yeah, exactly. Exactly right. And, that, and then you wonder why people don't think that they're worshiping when they're not. That's it. How do you... You come up, you come out of a lesson like that, that God has a sense of humor. Does that want to motivate you to say, praise be to God? No, you just want to laugh. I was so offended. I was like ready to get up and leave. I'm glad you were offended. We should be offended because that is not right. It's sad. It's sad. And I pray that it doesn't happen to us. And no mention of the sacrifice of the very same cattle that he's thinking it's a joke about. It's just sad. Yeah. Well, I know it's, we've gone a little long, so let's, uh, let's pray. I want to stop this thing.